Hi everyone, you're listening to another episode of the Style Files podcast. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras, and I'm so thrilled for our guest who's joining us today, the wonderfully talented architect and interior designer, Ray Booth. An Alabama native and alumnus of Auburn University's School of Architecture, Ray Booth began his career as an intern at McAlpin. Moving to New York soon after, he had successful tenures in the offices of such distinguished design talents as John Saladino and Cloda. A decade later, reuniting with Bobby McAlpin, his former professor, Ray returned to McAlpin as a partner in its interior design firm. These days, Ray divides his time between the firm's Nashville office and its expanded New York office, which allows him to keep one foot in the city and the other in his native South. Ray is the author of Evocative Interiors, his best-selling first book published by Rizzoli in 2018. Ray's work has received significant recognition from the nation's most prestigious publications, including covers of Architectural Digest and features in El Decor, Veranda, Milieu, Wall Street Journal, and Vogue.com. In 2019, Ray launched his inaugural furniture collection with Hickory Chair and his first accessory and lighting collection with Arteriors. Ray, we're so excited to have you here today. Welcome. Hi, Ray. Hey, Paloma. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing better now that I get to speak with you. Ah, you are so kind. I'm so glad that it could work out for today. Me too. How are you doing? You know, I am fortunate and grateful every day. Good. That's How a good about you? Same. You know, I feel like it ebbs and flows and some days are better than others. Generally speaking, I think I've, I've been able to maintain um, a positive perspective and have been looking for silver linings and, you know, really thinking about how fortunate we are to be healthy and gainfully employed and all of those things. But, you know, I'll be honest, some days are hard. Some days I just want to go somewhere, anywhere at all. Isn't it true? I mean, I think you've, you've hit, hit it on the head there. Um, Mostly I, I think, you know, just how lucky we are. Um, and how many people, and, you know, I have so many friends in, in New York, and not only are they in little teeny tiny itty bitty apartments, but the weather has not been uh, any friend to them. Um, so I know they're just so happy when they get a chance to, to break outdoors and, uh, and hopefully stay safe in all of that. Right, definitely. So you're at home in Nashville now. Well, I have come into the office, um, as I think I had mentioned right. to you, we had a major storm blow through last night, um, yesterday afternoon, and took down a bunch of trees, and the power grid is out in Nashville on some colossal level. So oh we're, we happily have power um, in, down, in downtown Nashville, and I'm sitting at my desk and looking over the Capitol and blue skies and you know, going to err on that side of happiness. Right. Well, 2020 hasn't been too kind to Nashville so far this year. I mean, you no. guys have been through a lot. It, it really has, has kind of been one event after the other. But, you know, I guess we can all assume that that position. It's like soon as you um, get through one thing, I was reading in the, the New York Times this weekend, you know, now we've got the uh, killer Asian Asian giant hornets. Oh yes, the murder <laughs> hornets. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? 
Yeah. I mean, don't you just wish we could all just take a big nap and have 2020 just suddenly be behind us because it just has been one for the books. It's been, it's been a crazy one, Yeah. but listen, you know, let's say it's also extraordinary times and it, it gives us a new perspective on life and, um, our place in it and how we can look to support other people. So there is always a silver lining. And I I appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, let's dig in a little bit because um, we'll get to how you made it back to Nashville, but you are a Southern boy. You grew up in Alabama and went to Auburn. Did you, did you always know you were destined to be an architect (laughs) and designer that you would be doing something creative with your life? You know, I, I am one of these very fortunate people who I can say from a very young age, um, I had an extraordinary mother, still do, fortunately, mm. um, who had grown up very poor in uh, just outside of Atlanta. And she had really, I mean, when I say poor, you know, it was outhouses and, you know, they heated the, the house by a, a wood burning stove and she tells all kind of tales. But she uh, had uh, an opportunity to go live with another family outside of uh, Atlanta when her family was going through some uh, turmoil, let's say. And at this particular time, at a very young age, she was maybe three or maybe she was actually five, somewhere around there. Um, this, she came across this childless family named the Gowers had a, who had a beautiful antebellum home. And it was the first time my mother had really experienced beautiful architecture. And my mother tells these stories of, you know, how the big columns out front and the beautiful, gracious sweeping staircase and the grand piano in the, uh, the main salon. But she never talked about how beautiful and extraordinary this house was without talking about the Gowers, the people who, who lived there. And they had given her all kind of kindness at this very vulnerable time in her young life. Uh, As I said, there was turmoil going on for her at home. And I think for my mom, it really solidified this emotional connection with with architecture and beauty uh, in a way that she was hooked. And Mm -hmm. I was very much a mama's boy, grew up loving my mom, spending time with my mom. And so that was really passed on to me at a very... Um, early time in my life. And I, I knew of, of home. I knew that it meant more than just beauty, that uh, we would go on these tours in our hometown. And I, I would get this look in my mother's eye and I knew she was really looking at something more important. And that was that these, our homes are our emotional vessels. And so I was hooked and that took me to, to uh, Auburn to study architecture. Amazing. And so when you were at Auburn, you had a very well-regarded professor who would then factor (laughs) into your life for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I look back and Bobby and I have um, been in in each other's lives in in these different capacities Um, since probably 1987, 86. So I've had the good fortune of of knowing this man, uh, initially he was my uh, my professor for my second year of architecture study, and then pretty soon after that, I started interning in their offices in Montgomery, Alabama, 
and then graduated, moved to New York. Um, they weren't ready to hire me and, um, and came back to me maybe after the first year I'd been in New York. And they said, you know, well, we're ready to hire you now back in Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> and this Alabama boy was not ready to leave New York City. I had just kind of started that ad adventure. So fortunately, we remained good friends. And uh, 10 years later, he asked again, and he asked if I would come back as a partner. And at that time, it was kind of the perfect uh, time for me to step off the, the fast track in, in New York City and come home. That's amazing. So for our listeners who may not know, Ray's referring to Bobby McAlpin, uh, one of you know the most famous, well-known, highly regarded architects of our time. And when he says 1987-86, you must also know if you're not familiar with Ray, he's one of the most beautiful people. <laughs> in the design industry oh, good Lord. over 39 so <laughs> oh yeah Let, you, let's, let's add nine. some to those those years paloma <laughs> so while in new york before you came back to the south yeah you worked with a couple of other very famous designers john saladino and cloda yes tell us about those experiences well you know i had i had left um, the South and graduated from architecture and just, I, you know, I was so passionate about architecture and I, I had never been to New York. I had no place to live. I think I had maybe $500 in my pocket and three friends that I was traveling up there with, but I had a lead and that lead took me to the offices of John Saladino. He was working on a project that uh, Bobby McAlpin had worked on in Atlanta, Georgia, which I had actually worked on the presentation drawings for that when I was an intern. And so John hired me and in his architecture department uh, and another friend of mine, Gray Davis, at the same time of Meyer Davis, you may mm -hmm. know. Um, and, you know, it was this great revelation. You know, I had studied architecture. I had known my entire life that architecture was going to be part of, of, of my career and my way forward. And then I got to John's office and I was like, but wait, there is so much more. You know, the rabbit hole goes so much deeper. And so I really, I swerved off into uh, kind of the pursuit of more of the interiors uh, side of my career, um, just in, in learning about, uh, you know, the beautiful color palettes that John would put together and these extraordinary furnishings and such. So that really led me uh, to the first half of my career being more interior design based. Right. And what lessons from that time with John? I mean, talk about a legend. What lessons were you learning at that time that you still carry with you today? You know, I, I think there, there are a lot of them and shades of a lot of them. For, for me, certainly um, the color palettes that John worked with were uh, I've never been able to come anywhere close. I don't know of anybody who does. John had um, studied as a fine arts uh, major and a painter. He was a painter as well. And so I, I've always kind of referred to him as that. You know, he created these beautiful painterly palettes that would have everything from, you know, this soft, uh, beautiful uh, periwinkle color to this vibrant fuchsia. And it was not about, um, certainly wasn't about monochromatic palettes, which we, we employ a lot of times, but it was this really beautiful 
uh, painterly palette. So I, I think I've, I've always taken from that, finding these notes of the unexpected. And once you establish a rule, you've got to break it. Um, and then from the architectural side, I think John, uh, again, from his training, um, had a real appreciation for classical architecture, but was not limited to it. Um, so while he would employ a lot of, of classical details and things, he would, he would do it in a way that uh, was a little more modern in its take. And uh, so I think that was also something that I really learned from, from his offices. Sure. And then Cloda, for instance, I think has such a philosophical approach to yeah. the way that she designs. And if anybody has ever had the opportunity to hear her speak, she's so, so interesting. And the way she talks about forms and materials and uh, just design in the, in the larger sense mm -hmm. as the way that it connects with nature and the world as a whole is so fascinating. Absolutely. And, and it was such uh, an interesting swerve for me having been at Saladino's office to go work uh, with Cloda. And, you know, I actually call Cloda the sculptress mm -hmm. because really she was a sculptor. Um, Cloda had uh, started her training in, uh, she was a fashion designer and then had, had come to uh, interior design and even architecture uh, later in her life. And she didn't really draw as much as she would craft these little models. So we would sculpt things in clay, we would build things in balsa wood, and it was just like this amazing little workshop. And it was an interesting way of really exploring uh, space and proportion and design in a totally different way. And she was really unlimited in her imagination and ability to, um, to design in, in different languages and with different tools, different aesthetics. Right. That had to be fascinating as a young person starting out in their career to learn from someone with such an approach. And like Absolutely. you said, you know, to make this big sort of shift coming from John Saladino's office and having interned at McAlpin to then go to someone who is sculpting things and making models and approaching design in such a, a different sort of organic way I had to have been so amazing just a formative experience yeah for me I think it has really it's led me here later in my life to let go a little bit and not hold on to all of the things that we learn and limit yourself to just what you know it has encouraged me to take chances and step out of the expected uh, every now and then right definitely so you spent about 10 years, you said, in New York? 10 years in, in New York, and then went from Manhattan to Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> How did you know it was time? <laughs> you know, uh, it was so funny because I, I was loving New York at the time. Um, I had extraordinary stable of friends there. Um, but I guess I was sort of hitting my own personal, you know, ceiling um, in my career. I knew I wanted something more substantial. I knew that I ultimately had this love of architecture that I was not fully um, embracing. And so when the invitation came, you know, so many people, so many of my friends just looked at me like, are you kidding me? You're going to move to Montgomery, Alabama. But 
Paloma, I truly do believe philosophically that sometimes we find the things that we're most looking for by looking in exactly the opposite direction of where you think they lie. You know, we, we get mm -hmm. so on these paths and we think I've just got to barrel ahead and I'm going to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to make it. But sometimes you just need to stop and turn your ass around and go in the exact opposite direction. And, and not that Montgomery was um, that different of a place for me. Of course, I had cut my teeth there and I had a great love for the people there and the people who I'd be working with. So, so it certainly was coming home for me uh, at that time. And, and I think it really, it, as hard as it was, because initially I, I think I cried uh, a couple years uh, every weekend thinking, you know, what, what have I done? I'm so alone down here. But I wasn't in the, the family of, of people that I was working with. And, uh, and that really became the most important thing for, for me to do in my, my working career. That's so profound. That's really interesting. And what was it like, especially in the beginning, working in partnership with someone who was your mentor? You know, it, um, it's, it, it's an extraordinary opportunity um, because it, it was coming back to, you know, I also believe life is so cyclical. We learn things and I had learned so much from my McAlpin family uh, in my early years. Sometimes we got, we got to be the prodigal son. We got to go away. We got to learn other things. We've, we have to kind of forget what we originally thought were the answers, but it was, it was coming home and, and coming back to work with Bobby um, that I knew was my, this was my real path. And I think it's been, um, it's been a little challenging only in that the man is so extraordinarily talented. And, you know, I think it was, um, I think, oh, I'm, I'm going to remember this the right way. Um, I think it was Rodin, uh, the sculptor. Mm -hmm. I think he said this. It might have been Brancusi who was working for Rodin. Um, he had walked from where he lived weeks and weeks to go work with a sculptor. And um, he got in there and I think he worked for maybe the first uh, month or something. And then he announced that he was leaving. And Rodin was like, you know, how, how can you be leaving? You've really just gotten here. You've walked for weeks to get here. And, uh, and Brancusi said something to the effect of, you know, under the shadow of a great oak, a sapling has no opportunity to grow. And, mm -hmm. You know, if, if there's any detriment, it's just that Bobby's talent is so great. And I have such admiration as so many of us do. It's, it's kind of hard to find your own little spot of sun and, and, and be contributive to this greater organization and partnership in a way that, you know, I feel like is my charge to be as a partner here at McAlpin. I want to be bolstering and bringing as much to the table as, as I've been offered uh, in this partnership. Right. Well, that's, I think that's a really 
candid thing to say too, because it mu- it has to be challenging and partnerships aren't always easy, even in the best of times. True. And, you know, you have collective goals and a collective sort of identity, but then at the same time, you're individuals with individual goals yeah. and individual perspectives. How have you towed that delicate balance between executing and maintaining that very distinct McAlpin point of view with your own style and your own perspective? Well, I think in large part, it's, it is from where we create. And that is, I think all three partners, Greg Tankersley, Bobby McAlpin and, and, and myself, and certainly others that have been here, there's been an extraordinary stable of architects and designers that have worked uh, in, in association, been partners uh, in this business. But I think we all know that it's ultimately not about us. It's about the people that we're working for and the right. clients that we serve. And while we've got a certain aesthetic and a bias on some level, it's paramount to us that we listen to those people and what their stories are and what make, makes them different than the other client that just left you know, two hours ago. And that we change ourselves into some, you know, shade of purple if that's what they want to do. And we bring with us all of our, our tools and our process that, that maybe uh, have some bearing and some influence on that. But we really strive to create something new and bespoke and personal and meaningful for every client that walks in our door. Absolutely. And how do you divide up projects? I assume that you guys aren't ever working on the same project at one time. Typically, your client would get one of you, but not all. Well, right. You know, not necessarily. Um, Okay. We we really do. We are um, chameleons in that we will I'll do uh, just interiors happily. Um, It's my favorite project. Uh, that Bobby will have done the architecture for, Greg will have done the architecture for. Um, you know, sometimes I've got architecture projects that are my own that I'll do the interiors for. Sometimes I work on interiors with other architects. So again, it's just kind of who shows up at our door. And if there's an extraordinary client and project and possibility, we turn into whatever shade we we need to turn into to serve their project Mm -hmm. and and you know in some of it uh as far as how things come to the to each of us we've been out there long enough that people seem to know our work and there are you know less and less publications out there but there are publications and books and things that we we put out that are those leaders that bring people into the office um to invite us into their project so it's kind of following that DNA, what, what was the project that brought them in uh, and who worked on that and um, how might that be the right choice for this particular client? Sure. What do you think people should understand prior to entering a partnership? Because it's very different entering a business partnership than it is doing your own thing. Sure. How do you make it work? What do you think is the most important factor there? I can only share what 
my partners have offered me, and that is, God bless them. They have, <laughs> if I have ever come and said, I want to, I want to do architecture again, you know, or I want to do this product line or lighting line, um, they have always been the first to encourage me and support that. And I think we all share that for one another. Whatever your life needs, whatever your soul requires or wants to pursue, we are there in partnership to support each other on that. And it's a really beautiful place to come from, but it's not not a typical one, I don't believe. Um, and I just feel very fortunate that I've, I've landed with, with Greg and Bobby uh, in, in that spirit of partnership. That's wonderful. It sounds like you all really support one another both individually and within your collective business. We really do. We really do. What does someone wanting to start their own design firm need to understand about what it takes to run a business and manage a team? Um, you know, I, a couple of things. I, I think foundation work, um, it's same thing in building or, or even in interior design. You've got to get that foundation, that base off which you can build a pallet or a room around a particular, let's say it's a carpet or the foundations for a house. You've got to get those foundations right. And in my perspective, I think that's making sure that you've got your business organization set up the correct way. Um, you know, interior design, especially architecture to a lesser degree, there's a lot of business that's involved in it. And I can't say that I've always gotten that, that part right, but th that's where the second component comes in. And that is to involve those people who know the things that you don't, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. which for me, there's a lot of people that know a lot more than I do. <laughs> um, and try to integrate them into your organization. Um, more and more, I realize how valuable it is to have the team. It's not all about you or all about one person or the other. It's about that team and how we connect um, and thus move forward as, as, as one in the work that we do. Absolutely. I mean, it truly takes a village to bring a project to life. <laughs> both, both within your organization and outside of your organization. You know, uh, you Definitely. you've written um, your book as well, and you know, just even finding the right partners in that kind of process that really know uh, the publishing world. It's, I guess, it's mm -hmm. that way for for any aspect that you want to um, pursue in this work. Definitely. So, Ray, at what point did you go from Auburn to Nashville to establish an office there? Well, um, so I was in Montgomery. I guess we were there for about two years. And uh, at the time, we had another partner uh, in the interiors firm, Susan Farrier, uh, who has since left to start her own uh, business. But mm -hmm. Uh, Susan and I were, were kind of two peas in a pod. We literally lived together in a two-bedroom apartment in, in Montgomery. And Bobby had uh, met who was his, his partner at that time, lived in Nashville, Tennessee. And Bobby said, well, 
I'm moving to Nashville. Who wants to go? And Susan and I both raised our hands so quickly. It would have made your head spin. <laughs> we're like, we're going. We're there. Um, and so Susan and I left uh, what was the most beautiful office you will have ever seen. It was the Sable Mansion, an old 1920s limestone uh, house in Montgomery that was our office. Just a beautiful place to work. And we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where we had got a little office downtown. We literally lived together in a one bedroom apartment. I slept in the dining room. And, um, and that was our entry into to Nashville. We, we did have the good fortune of a couple of uh, fairly substantial jobs here. And, mm-hmm. and that was the lead. Bobby and uh, the McAlpin organizations kind of been adopted by different cities uh, throughout its tenure. And Nashville at that particular time had started hiring us where Montgomery was not hiring us. So it was kind of new fertile ground. And so we, we packed our bags and, and came to town. Interesting. Well, that makes me wonder, what would you say is the strongest foothold? I know that you, you work as a firm all over the country. I mean, in many, many places, but is there one particular sort of hot spot that you would say the most, the, the bulk of your business is in? You know, I don't know that we could limit it to one Paloma. It's uh Mm-hmm. And that's both good and bad. It would sure be nice to have a lot of it focused right around Nashville or New York sure. where we live. But, uh, you know, Greg Tankersley's done some work out in Utah and Utah has just taken off. He's done so many things in Salt Lake City and Park City. Um, we're we're doing a beautiful job in Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles, um, Napa, uh, Texas. I mean, it it's wherever there is great and interesting work and clients uh, that have the, uh, the courage to bring us into their, their process and, and start on this extraordinary kind of journey together. Sure. How do you think that working in so many different places will have to evolve post COVID? Amen. Wow. That's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm hoping you have the answer because I certainly don't. So <laughs> well, let's work it out friends. together because I'm sure I don't have the answer either. <laughs> but if anything, this crisis is tragic as it has been for so, so many and heartbreaking. Um, I think it, it has allowed a lot of us to hone and refine our process. And, you know, we are, I'm sitting in this, new beautiful office that we just moved into um, last summer and thinking, why did we spend so much money on a new big office when we can get so much done uh, in our remote locations working from home? Uh, We've really employed, as everyone has, uh, go-to meetings and Zoom meetings and, and such. And, you know, as technology continues to evolve, we, we did a site meeting for this project in uh, Pacific Palisades in, Lo- in Los Angeles. They have this technology where they go in with this kind of ball that sits on uh, a kind of a tripod and it photographs the room in 360 so that you can kind of on your computer, you can walk through the entire house virtually. Uh, which is not nothing like being there in person, but I think it's going to change our need when you can do that fairly effectively. It's going to change our need to physically be 
on our sites as much as we might have been before. And, you know, until we figure out a vaccine, that might be some of our only option to continue to, to work successfully. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's been a really eye-opening experience to see, to figure out exactly how nimble we all are yes. and how we've been able to adapt to this sort of new normal of working. And thankfully, I've, I have found that most of our clients, all of our clients really have been so understanding of, you know, the fact that maybe we can't meet or shouldn't meet in person right now, but they've been so great about, you know, doing Zoom meetings, like you said, or doing things via conference call. Yes. And I do think to some degree, it makes us so much more efficient. I think so to too. To be able to, to do it that way. You know, it's, it, you're almost, you're forced into, you're forced to focus, in, in more mm -hmm. uh, substantial ways um, to be effective. So I think maybe that's good. That's, that's something good we can take away from it. Right. So speaking of Nashville, mm -hmm. you have homes in New York and Nashville. You still have a place I in have New York. An apartment, yep. How do you divide your time between the two? And would you say that each of your homes has a different mood, if you will, based on the way that you live in those sure, cities? Sure, sure. Um, they do. They, they feel very different in that, um, you know, Nashville is on a hilltop up in the trees. It really is a version of a treehouse. Um, you really are, are kind of there just kissing the sky uh, on the hilltop. And so the house responded very much to that site. Um, the walls all kind of blew out with glass, glass corners. The color palette was influenced by the context into which it sits, which is this you know, beautiful verdant um, valley below, the pale blue gray of the skies and the silver of the clouds and the whites of the clouds and even the purple uh, of the mountains in the distance. So all of that was pulled into and influenced the Nashville house. Um, New York is kind of an old, um, it's, we've just got a one bedroom, good size uh, loft in, um, in the nomad section of, of New York, which happens to be two blocks away from our office in New York. So a lovely commute. That's uh, so, so nice. nice. Um, and it's, it's, it overlooks, it's actually a lot of fun because our, our former home in New York which we lived in more full time was a, the back of a townhouse. It was two floors in the roof of a townhouse, uh, very much lower scale. We're up on the ninth floor in this new apartment and we look straight down Broadway, which is a beautiful vista towards Madison Square Park. Mm -hmm. And the palette there was very much about simplicity and, and crispness. It, it was, the walls are white, the curtains are white um, the, the furniture is a lot more contemporary where Nashville's got a few more traditional notes mixed with contemporary. The, uh, the furnishings are a little edgier there in New York, just to kind of respond to, uh, to the speed and energy of the city. That's so great. And do you just de decide when to be in each place, depending on what's on your, your yeah. docket for work well, at the time? Well, you know, I still, I still think conceptually what I'd like to, to strive for is kind of two weeks in Nashville, two weeks in New York. The past two years with uh, first the book tour 
And then I launched two product lines uh, last year, one with Hickory Chair and one with Arteriors. And there was all of, you know, launching those at market and then touring uh, to do lectures and, and some of the showrooms and things with, with that product. Um, it's just been catch as catch can as far as where I have been anywhere. And that's where I'll, mm -hmm. I'll come back to our current situation here. Uh, you know, the land of COVID-19, if nothing else, I have been in one place for nearly two months, which I haven't done in 25 years. So, um, how it's going to play out in the future, I guess, is all going to be influenced by the crisis that we're in now. Um, I can't wait to get back to New York and friends and clients there. But um, right now, I'm I'm grounded. It's crazy. I feel the same way. Um, I haven't traveled. Gosh, my last trip was the very beginning of at the very beginning of March, I went to Charleston. But prior to that, I was traveling at least every couple yeah. of weeks, if not more frequently, depending on what was going on. So it's been really strange, like very nice to be grounded in, in, in one place at one time. But I do miss yes, travel. I bet. Paloma, you have children, right? You don't. I, don't. I only have a okay. dog. I have a dog. Okay, child. dog child counts. Yes. I had two cat, cat children. Yes. I think a dog child is a harder <laughs> one. But, um, yeah. you know, I've... I've got to say women kind of blow my mind. Uh, I've got uh, some of my senior designers here that manage children, real children, uh, human children, mm -hmm. um, in addition <laughs> to you know traveling for, for work. And it is, um, it's a tough thing. I know it was tough for cats. I don't know how people do it for, for children as well. No, I know. I know. It'd be, it'd be so hard. And, you know, that's, part of you pl you play the hand that you're yeah. dealt I think and I know so many women who do incredible work and work so hard and have children and obviously that's a huge commitment in terms of time and energy and attention and all of those things and and they make it all seem so effortless but you know for me I know that if I had had mm -hmm. children I wouldn't be traveling the way that I right. am and I wouldn't, you just have to make concessions. I mean, I, I'm a big believer that you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, it, it's just, true. it's hard. There's not enough time. There's not enough time or bandwidth to do it all to the extent that you want to. So, you know, for me, I, I say I have the luxury of not having mm -hmm. children and being able to focus on my career as much as I do and to travel to the extent that I do. But, you know, if I had been dealt a different hand, I, I don't think I would be doing a lot of the things right. that I am. And so this is my journey and this was what I was meant to do. So I, I just make the most of, of the hand well, that I'm dealt, that's a you know, journey. <laughs> um, but I do miss travel. And I will say part of me thinks after all of this, maybe I, I would like to scale back a yeah. little bit because it gets to the point where it's just so mm -hmm. frenetic that you don't have any extra room, if you will, to, to just recharge. Yeah. And you need that in order to, to be creative and stay creative. No, it's really true. I think slowing it down for us in this society at this particular time, we're going to have all kind of new perceptions about how we work and how we live. Uh, everything is going to be impacted by this um, and can benefit from it. You know, it, it, we all have to, again, as, as tragic as this has been, um, 
and fortunately for my family, I, I haven't had any direct uh, people who've been affected, uh, affected or lost to the virus. And that's a totally different mm-hmm. um, point of view, I can but imagine. But um, I think we all, the rest of us, when we get to the other side of it, need to be sure to, to take with us what we've learned and remembered about home and life uh, right here. You know, for me, seeing spring, you know, throughout the, the beginning to to now going into the early parts of summer here has been just such a, a blessing. And I want to find ways to to make sure I'm making time for that in our in our busy right. schedules, which we do love as well. Yeah, that that's a really nice sentiment. And I think something to take forward. Yeah. for sure. So you mentioned a little while ago that um, you debuted your collection of furniture with hickory chair and lighting and decorative accessories with arteriors right. last year. Could you tell us a little bit about your approach for designing these collections? Well, sure. Uh, you know, part of it, it, it is not um, unfamiliar to our, our process for, for any kind of design and that I, as I mentioned, trained as an architect, worked for the first part of uh, in large part, uh, the process for designing for hickory chair and arteriors was not unfamiliar in that we had always designed uh, custom pieces for our clients. Uh, as a bit of a frustrated architect before I had made it back to working in architecture, um, I, would, I would exercise that muscle by designing custom sofas and, and tables and things in, for clients' uh, projects. So when Hickory Chair offered the invitation to do it for real, you know, I just kind of turned on more of that part of my brain and Paloma, it really, Mm -hmm. it went wild. I kind of didn't realize that I had in me as much product as was born out of just opening that little channel in my brain. Um, I was sketching, literally, I, part of my process is uh, I I travel so much. I, I travel with an eight and a half uh, by 11 pad of, of, um, vellum. And I just draw and overlay and overlay and overlay. And I cranked out a large part of, of, well, all of both collections, which were happening at the same time, arteriors and hickory chair to the point of where there was too much that we could even, even try to incorporate into the collection. Um, and, you know, hickory chair was, was kind of amazing in that they were a North Carolina furniture maker accustomed to upholstery and wood in large part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I said, um, you know, I'd really like to make a lot of things out of steel frames. And they kind of looked at me cross-eyed for maybe a minute, a minute and a half, and then said, okay, well, we'll figure it out. And they partnered with uh, a company um, just up the road in uh, Boone, North Carolina, that does all of their their steel work, uh, Charleston Forge is the company. And so it was, it was kind of an amazing thing to, to really click on that side of my brain and let it go to town. That's so great. It's such a handsome collection. It's very true to your style, but also, um, something that seems real. I think all the pieces are super versatile where someone purchasing these pieces, another designer can put their own stamp on it and really make it work within, you know, the, the spaces that they're creating, which I think is really important when you're bringing something to market. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You want it to have kind of that broad, um, certainly a broad appeal. But for me, I knew that I wanted innovation to be part of it. You know, I really wanted to exercise my brain to crack the code for, for what are some things that, that don't exist out there in the marketplace that, that we need. Um, but at the same time, for it not to be anything that uh, puts people off or doesn't allow them that opportunity to, to make it their own um, in their interiors. Right. What were some of those holes that you identified and then sought to fill with your collection? You know, um, I think one of them is the split Klesmos bench. Um, it's this kind of a two-person bench that sits up at a kitchen island, uh, kitchen counter. And it's kind of fun in that one person, there's a back only on half of it. So one person kind of faces the island. The other person can sit and put their elbows to the back of the island. So it's almost like the tete-a-tete of a counter stool. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of invention in that. Um, there's another piece, which is just a, a version of an old tete-a-tete where you've got um, uh, two people who will sit face-to-face uh, on these uh, kind of uh, L-shaped corners that we created that are uh, diagonally opposed. And all of that sits on this beautiful bar stock steel foot and that was something certainly that exists out there, but we needed a little bit of a modern uh, contemporary version of it. And I'll tell you, I took delivery on it. John, my husband and I took delivery on it the day before they shut everything down. We got one of those and we parked it up in our window overlooking our backyard. And there has not been one day, aside from nice days where we've been able to be outside that we haven't sat uh, in that tete-a-tete, facing each other and talking about the day with a cocktail. That sounds so, nice. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I think we all need a tete-a-tete now. I think so, and a cocktail, <laughs> and a cocktail for sure. A cocktail. You know, not until five thirty, five forty-five, mind you. But well, who's counting? so in addition to your collections you've also written a really beautiful book called evocative interiors could you Uh, tell us a little bit about that wow yeah that that was kind of a daunting thing to to do i i know Mm -hmm. i'm preaching to the choir because you've done the same thing um but you know to, to think about what we do intuitively you know, I, I've not really ever put it into words and to really have to boil back to how your process works and to, to make it make sense for the, the writers, hopefully, that, that are going to be reading the book was a bit of a daunting um, task. But it really, it, it required me to go, go back to my basics and why, why do I pursue the things that I do? Why does any of this matter to me? Why is the pursuit of, of beauty and architecture and design, why is it of significance? You know, um, it's not curing cancer. Um, but I, I really do believe that um, in this work, be it in interiors or architecture, or, or even clients that are doing it for themselves, we're all trying to create this environment on the exterior that reflects part of who we are on the interior. 
You know, it's a way of sharing what is inside of our heads with our family, with our friends. And so um, I think it has a, a lot of meaning and I think it is an important pursuit. And of course, in this current crisis, it's become even more important. Um, so I'm not sure that that answered your question, but. <laughs> no, it did. It did. So you, you titled the book Evocative Interiors. Yes. What makes an interior truly evocative in your eyes? What does that mean? Well, I, I do believe that what we do and the pursuit of beauty in what we do should really not be the main focus, that it should be the byproduct. It should be evidence, uh, a beautiful interior or a piece of architecture should be evidence of a greater pursuit, which is to connect to our clients, not on a trendy way or stylistic way, but on an emotional way. How do we design for clients in a way that hits them in the heart? How do you connect to their soul? Um, how do you make something that meaningful so that it transcends timelessness or style? It, it becomes um, something that they really emotionally connect to that is emotionally evocative. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's what my hope is for our work and what we strive to do in it. I love that. That's such a beautiful sentiment. And it truly speaks to the power of crafting an interior or a home, whether it's the, the architecture, the facade of a home, or the things that, that fill it, the content, those right. things should all have meaning yes. and stir one's soul in some degree. It can't just be stuff or a right. pile of bricks. It really, like art, it has to evoke a sense of place, a sense of home, whatever that means to you. I, I love that that's been your mission. Yeah, I, you know, and really truthfully, I, I think um, I always say it's a little bit of my get out of jail free card. I, in the pursuit of, of doing this work for clients, I don't have to figure it all out. I just have to ask the right questions of these people and spend time with them um, to get to know their hearts and their souls and, and what gives them joy and, and maybe even what breaks their heart mm -hmm. in order to, to create for them. So, Right. That's really profound. So, Ray, what's inspiring you th these days? Where do you turn for inspiration? For, for me, it's, it is always, always going to be, and this is maybe a, a, a cop-out, but it is nature. Um, you know, I've been I've been working a little bit on uh, a potential fabric line, uh, not for anybody in particular, but just designing fabric line. And we're on the tail end of it. But here during the crisis, as the gyms have closed and the gym is an important part of my kind of spiritual health uh, mm -hmm. is my physical health, uh, connecting more to my body and getting out of my crazy brain. Um, and so I've had to look for other alternatives and I've taken up trail running. Uh, there's a beautiful park here in Nashville, Percy Warner park. And it's been wonderful to be running through this spring season and seeing all that is coming to life in the park, these beautiful may apples and these beautiful patterns and, and really textures that, that you find in nature. And that's always been 
part of what my inspiration is born out of. Um, John and I met on a beach in, uh, in Spain. And so our, our lives have always taken us to the beach and in different places. We've had a home in Vieques. We've got a home in, in Cape Cod right now. Um, even in New York, we, we used to go out to Fire Island. So water and, and the pattern of light play um, through bodies of water has always been something that, that I find very inspirational for texture and pattern. That's what I've been longing for so much throughout this process. If I could just go anywhere, I, I would just love to be able to hear the sound of waves crashing and uh, the oh, that lull of the ocean. I think it would just be, it does wonders for making you feel more at peace and sort of right. washing away the stress, if you will. Yeah. So anyone it's the simple things. Those simple yes, things. Exactly. Well, Ray, as we wrap this up, what is currently giving you hope in the world of design or otherwise? You know, I, I'm going to have to say it is um, just the possibility and sometimes the practice of kindness. Um, you know, you see it in what's going on in cities like New York and Los Angeles, where people are in support of the healthcare workers that are just doing their jobs. And um, I, I guess I'm finding a lot of hope and promise and possibility and our collective awareness that we are fragile creatures and how we are all susceptible to this particular virus in this crisis and how that should have ramifications across all of our lives. You know, we, we, we all we're at this stage, you know, certainly politically where it's us and them and it's not, mm -hmm. it's not, we've, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will find a way of, of coming together and acceptance and, and certainly kindness. I hope so too. From, from your mouth to God's ears. Mm -hmm please. How can we do it? <laughs> I know. Well, Ray, it's been such a joy having you today. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. and I thank can't you. thank you enough for your time. I, I hope to see you soon. I hope so too, Paloma. Take the best care. And I so appreciate this time to chat with you all. You too. Sending you love, Ray. All right. Right back at you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. That was architect, interior designer, author, and furniture designer, Ray Booth. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at thestylefilespodcast.com where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or subscribe via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying The Style Files, please consider leaving us a positive rating or review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and will make a huge difference for us. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time.